Well, um, I'm going to cut you off and make you do it again because you hit your mic stand and I heard the spring. I did? Yeah, in the middle of it, the spring went off. (laughs) (laughs) Dang, that was acapella? I thought I was listening to like a (laughs) clip. No. You are legit, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Don't believe the hype. Read the type. This is Type Beast. Take a look. It's in a book. It's Type Beast, baby. Man, we're, we're blessed. Uh, I think, was this maybe the second episode where we're doing a Type Beast with with a, the, you know, a guest? Or maybe, I guess if you think of it from a guest perspective, it might be a third episode, maybe, with, uh, with a guest regarding a book or literature. Yeah, well, well yeah, well, no, well, this is kind of like um, what we did with um with tony with tony lemma where um we reviewed the book um black faces white masks mm-hmm. by france fanon france well and Fanon. i was thinking about uh, uh Koizis as well when we had uh, well he well he, he was the author yes he, yes, he was the I author know. but that's why but i this, sort of but, said two three yeah but this one is is uh kind of like the one we did with with tony where where we got an expert um, or, or somebody that holds a, a, a very unique, strong view that we can all learn from. Uh, so, well, considering your critiques of subject matter experts on previous episodes, you probably should stop using the word expert. But anyways. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll I guess we'll let the, the audience uh, let us know. Yeah, decide if, if this guy, I, I think, I think, I think this guy's an expert. Please welcome Vince Consilla to the show. Welcome, Vince. I hear the stands cheering. <sighs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Thanks, guys, for having me. This is awesome. Well, My and pleasure. Based on the topic, it would have been, you know, uh, not so much fans, but the uh, the Roman Colosseum cheers, more like jeers. That's right. They're unleashing the lions this very moment. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the beasts, <laughs> the tight beasts, are being unleashed. <laughs> Uh, yeah the tight beasts right yeah 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 so So for the listeners um a reminder the so the tight tight beast is is basically a segment of the six and support where joel and i talk about books that influence the way we think in the yeah the way we think in 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 books that that we are likely to be reading uh vince just to give the listeners a background um how do we know each other so yeah i was just uh, chatting with joel a bit about this before we went live but um so we met at the uh, Ezra Institute, where Darnell was dropping some seriously controversial bombs in his talk <laughs> on uh, black and brown privilege. And uh, so we got to chatting afterward there and realized we had mutual friends and uh, we have uh, the teaching profession in common and such. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I was really edified by your talks uh, both times I heard you. At, uh, at Ezra, so it really piqued my interest. Okay, thanks, thanks, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And actually, uh, like I told you, you made me nervous. Oh, really? I forget that. What happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you made me really nervous because, um, like, everybody knows, like, I like I, I make jokes and stuff, and you weren't laughing at any of my jokes, and you were wearing, <laughs> and you were wearing these really like intellectual glasses, <laughs> and 
and and you have a and you have you know what you have a studious posture about you a studious countenance the glasses the the way you trim your beard the look on your face and he had joel this guy had a straight look the whole time so the whole time i'm like oh this guy's gonna tear me apart after this i was like oh shoot this guy's not laughing at my jokes he's not he's not reacting to you know <laughs> to my lecture i was like oh man i know i'm going to hear from this guy afterwards and then you know when i spoke to him he was um you know really gracious and kind and i was like oh okay oh so you were enjoying it. he's like yeah i was enjoying it i'm like oh you, you weren't laughing you were <laughs> he, he was taking a lot of notes he was taking a lot of notes and i was like oh this guy's gonna tear me apart <laughs> so but um but yeah I, I um i got to spend a lot of downtime with vince and um and i and i learned a lot about his passion for education in literature and uh, then he 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 started um, Aslan, um, his Aslan Academy, which me as as, a, as an educator, I'm like, oh shoot, like I I should be using I should be using this resource to help me um, teach better. So uh, can you you can give uh, more of a background on yourself in the Aslan um, Academy that you created? Can you do that for us, Vince? Yeah, sure. So. Education-wise, I did my uh, BA at York University, so it was like a specialized honors in English Lit, which essentially means like you take the maximum number possible English and humanities credits humanly possible, um, and so you get like less of a spread of electives. But that way, I covered sort of every period of English literature and kind of like classical literature as well. And later on, I started to do a, a master's in English at York, but that year they went on strike for like five months. So I pieced out on that and I was like, nah, I'll see you guys. Um, Cause that was crazy. And then later on, years later, I sort of went back and um, to uh, a college in Buffalo and I did my master's of education. What school? It's Madai College. Oh, you went to Madai? That's right. Yeah. Cause I was supposed yeah. to go to Madai. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was supposed to go to Madai. Um, and yeah, anyways, yeah, I was supposed to go to Madai. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, great school. Um, and there you get like dual certified for New yes. York State and Ontario. Yes. So that was sort of my goal to have options in the States. Yeah, um, me too. So certified to teach uh, English grades 7 to 12, but I've been teaching uh, high school English, mainly grades 11 and 12 advanced English at an international school for like the last four years. But then July our school kind of like was no longer financially viable because the lockdowns in Toronto put a strangled hold on our enrollment, which was all from Korea because they were international students who wanted to like come to university in Canada. Um, so we survived for a while as an online school during COVID, but then the lockdowns were just too brutal here. And um, so I was out of a job and I thought like, wow, what does God want me to do next? And just from a convergence of a number of, you know, streams of things in my life, maybe closed doors. Also, I thought, you know, maybe now's the time to start this educational publishing company project that I've always wanted to do. Because as you're going to learn soon, Darnell, once you get your first land, your first teaching job, uh, the first three, four years of teaching is like absolute madness, total chaos. Because you're doing a million and one things from scratch and you have like literally no time to do it all. Um, so I, I created this company called Aslan Academy, which um, a lot of people don't know. Just an interesting tidbit. The word Aslan is the Turkish word for lion. 
and C.S. Lewis just borrowed that straight from Turkish. And uh, eventually, I'm hoping to go to Turkey and live there. And part of my dream is to like fund myself to do that. But in, in the meantime, you know, I wanted to hit this gap that I saw in the educational world, which is we need quality curriculum. We need things that are traditionally based, so traditional approaches to literary and media interpretation, because as you guys cover copiously, I'm sure, you know, the whole critical race theory, Marxism, feminism, those literary approaches have like dominated the academy and in studies and, you know, literary criticism for a while. Um, So I wanted to push back against that. So Aslan Academy is uh, about recovering the human in the humanities, recovering this whole idea of character development and actually being more human and a better human. And in order to do that, you have to have the right definition of it, human. Um, So sort of start there and just want to provide like really, really solid lecture materials for students where I show them how to do deep interpretation and literary analysis, and then also provide like curriculum for teachers to teach the text well. So yeah, you can check out aslanacademy.ca and uh, everything's on there. My YouTube channel links from there and I'm hoping it will grow and uh, maybe become a new movement in education. Mm. Mm. And we lost the ground. And and that's also on Teachers Pay Teachers, right? That's right. So the teaching products are sold on Teachers Pay Teachers and all the lectures for students are free on YouTube. I've got 11 playlists on there covering novels and short stories and media literacy and some other stuff. Okay. Okay. Cool. Now you mentioned, um, you mentioned two things. Uh, why do you want to move to Turkey and why, and and can you, can can you define for us like the, what is the humanities and why is it important? Sure. Yeah. So not to major on that sidebar of the story, but in 2017, I went to live in Turkey for two months with a friend who was a worker there. We okay. usually don't use the M word in context of uh, international Christian work. Sorry? Um, we usually don't use the M word. Oh, uh, missionary. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of like a discipline that I tried to, you know, retain is like, don't use that word, just say worker. But yeah, mm-hmm. I want to be like a worker overseas for the Lord there. And I kind of mm-hmm. had a call on my life when I went there and lived there for two months. Um, So uh, Aslan Academy that way is kind of partially like dual culturally branded. So I'm hoping like I'll go there, keep running this Aslan Mm, Academy and mm. like be a tent maker. But then, hey, I can start like an ESL school there, Aslan Academy. Like it makes sense there too. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's that's a dream. Um, Okay. I mean, in terms of the humanities, broadly speaking, like even that term humanities um has somewhat been relegated to like a single department within the university faculties right like the humanities department mm-hmm. but previously like in elizabethan england for example like shakespeare you know he had a grammar school education he never went to university but he would have had like a broad training in all of like the liberal arts so grammar logic rhetoric philosophy um persuasive obviously speaking and writing as part of rhetoric and 
that was just like the core base of anyone's education. It didn't matter if you were going to be a scientist or a logician or whatever you were going to be. I mean, you had to read Homer in Greek and you had to read, you know, Virgil in Latin and you had to know French. And um, so broadly speaking, like that's the liberal arts humanities origins. And it was all centered around moral and spiritual formation, which was originally, you know, a Christian emphasis. And then guys like Erasmus and others were kind of, you know, uh, from a Christian sphere, or he was Catholic, but still rooted in, you know, Christian understanding of God. And then later that sort of got hijacked into like secular humanism, which was sort of like mm. this idea of like, some kind of self-improvement project for humanities, but it lost its rootedness in the idea of the origin and the meaning of what it means to be human, which is obviously to be made in the image of God. Mm. That that that's that's helpful because you know a lot of times we we hear the term you know the humanities or secular humanism. Um, what 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 does that actually mean? So that that that's helpful. I was actually reading a book called. Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen. And he has a section on liberalism in, in education, in, in, in the uh, liberal arts education. What is liberal arts education? And, mm. and he was saying a lot of the stuff that you were saying in regards um, to it, it, it's, its Christian foundations. And he was saying that originally um, the, the, the liberal arts were, were disciplines or subjects that were, that were there to free the human to free mm-hmm. man to make him more free so the more informed a person became the more free they became and and so the I, the premise was that man is not free and so mm-hmm. he has to um learn how to become free now today that's not the case it's it, the, the 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 term has been flipped on its head and now uh class or liberal arts education means that well we're already free right yes. so the premises we're already free so we're 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 we are um learning these subjects to become um to be able to explore our um freedom um and 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 kind of breaking the rules of uh what it means to be human yeah which is more of like libertinism to be licentious almost that kind of freedom versus actually it's interesting the way that you phrase that because somebody was just quoting john milton to me earlier at lunch today from um his his poem uh samson agonistes which is about samson and there's a great line in there that talks about um, prosperous ease versus strenuous liberty and Mm. so the strenuous liberty is the discipline of being human the discipline of like michelangelo chipping away at these blocks of stone because he saw the image that was waiting to be revealed beneath and we need to chip away all the hard edges right that's like the the original kind of definition of the word character is really having to do with like carving and sculpting and now like you said it's like you assume you're free already like what do i need to be liberated from and they Mm -hmm. think they need to throw off the shackles 
really of morality, which is the very thing that will free them, so that it's this like satanic inversion and this counterfeit. And just another thing to mention quickly that's so intertwined with this whole discussion is the fact that the liberal arts and the humanities were the disciplines that taught you how to think, that taught you critical thinking. What are logical fallacies? How do you analyze an argument or make an argument? It's all communication-based. And I think the quandary that we find ourselves in these days is that nobody knows how to think. And maybe when we get to Fahrenheit 451 later in this episode, um, I'll, I'll just come back to that point because I think it's the loss of critical thinking that has made the mass of society unable to function and think clearly and actually interact in a healthy kind of dialogue. And that's why everything's become kind of bite-sized, like, you know, turn up the volume and just shout louder than your opponent and somehow you're, you won the argument then. So I w- you had originally mentioned creating this uh, Aslan Academy out of, you know, the gap you saw. Uh, and I was going to, you know, sort of get you to expound on it. But, but it sounds like you've, you know, you've identified that here being the lack of critical thinking. Um, and I was, uh, rec- like, when you mentioned earlier, I brought, thought about when we were speaking with Julie Panessi, I had brought up a quote from John Taylor Gatto from his book, Weapons of Mass Instruction. Where his comment on public education, um, essentially he's saying, we adopted the very worst aspects of Prussian culture, an education system deliberately designed to produce mediocre intellectuals, to hamstring the inner life, to deny students appreciable leadership skills, and to ensure a docile and incomplete citizen in order to render populace manageable. Mm. And I just think that resonates so much with what you just said about a not thinking in, you know, intellectual or, or let's say literature student um, is so much of the catalyst to why you've created this. Uh, is that a fair understand? Like my perception, is that, is that probably a, a fair understanding? Obviously the yeah, relevance that, of this quote might be. That's beautifully said. Yeah. That, that just nails it because um, essentially the way that the curriculum is designed nowadays is more to just like check off these boxes to get a grade and nobody actually teaches well i I shouldn't use words like nobody but it's rare to see someone teach a student how to think about their own learning and then critique their own learning and their own thinking to think about thinking because it's Mm. almost it's almost designed to discourage that and obviously, even more so nowadays with all of the kind of like woke politics that are hijacking dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, when when did um, when did that guy write that quote? Um, so his book is Weapons of Mass Instruction. John Taylor Gatto was like a thirty-year teacher or or mm-hmm. educator, I should say. And post being in there, he started writing these books that were very critical of the education system. Um, mm. I'd have to check, double check that. I, I'm assuming uh, this is slightly speculative, but I'm, I want to say around the late '80s, '90s is when he was doing his writings. Um, wow! I, but but I'd have to double check the the date for books. Yeah, that's an awesome quote. Love it. Yeah, yeah. I, try, I really like his stuff. He's he's on the point with most of his criticism. Yeah, you you're really well read, Vince, and 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 I respect that, and I love that, and and, and it shows in your in your commentary. 
And I guess when it comes down to literature, uh, you know, I think we reading is valuable. Um, your time is valuable when reading. So we have to be selective of how we use our time. Mm. And so the books you, you, you cover are um, a lot of fiction. And, and, and I, think, I think there's points of continuity for me and you. Uh, so for example, um, like for me, I like reading a lot of, of course, you know, the Bible and, and analyzing scripture and, and you do, you do, um, a lot of good textual analysis of fictional literature. Right. Um, yeah. and so for me, uh, what I'm, what I want to ask you is, um, the, the books that, that you, some of the points, some of the books that you talk about are dystopian literature, which is fiction. Yeah. To me, and I could be wrong. I'm gonna say something crazy, but <laughs> I don't I don't I don't I, I don't read fiction. And I think it's a waste of time. Um right? <laughs> I think it's a waste of time. And the reason why I think it's a waste of time is because your time's limited. And so if I'm gonna read something, I wanna read a biography, I wanna read, of course, scripture, um, but anything that's close as close to reality as possible. Like anything about fantasy, uh Star Wars. Uh, anime is a waste of my time. <laughs> Convince me that I'm wrong, Vince. Well, I'm not going to contradict you about anime, but uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry to the anime fans out there. I don't know. I don't know that genre that well, but um, okay. <laughs> well, you know, I think that you're less human as a result. If I'm oh. true to if I'm true to my oh. my thesis, right, that if you don't read fiction, um, you're in a sense less human because true true books, if you want to call them true books, present humanity to us in in all its variety of experience, and poetry, fiction, um, the sort of art of the novel. They do that in a very unique way. So I got to push back on you because you said you read the Bible. And the Bible has lots of fiction in it. There are parables, right? There are even allegories in the Bible. There's a lot of poetic symbolism. And there's a lot of the use of um, different literary genres to actually communicate, you know, deep, deep meaning. So it's super interesting when God gives the the curses in Genesis 3, he does it in poetry. Mm. So our God loves fiction, loves story, loves narrative, loves to structure things and communicate with these symbols and motifs and images because that's literally like lighting up the dial of different parts of your humanity that you can't access through nonfiction because it's speaking almost like a different dialect of your humanity. If I could sort of like make an off the cuff kind of you know, image myself. Mm -hmm. um, and what you say actually reminds me of a scene in um, Fahrenheit 451, which is really interesting. So the, the basic premise of Ray Bradbury's novel is, you know, books are banned and the firemen, instead of putting out fires, they light fires, they go around and burn books. Anyone who's found with books, they're like, 
burn everything in your house, burn your books. And the main character, spoiler alert, um, Montag, is sort of struggling with his identity as a fireman and secretly like snatching some books. And he sort of starts to go off the rails a bit and one day decides to like read a book in front of his wife and her girlfriends who just want to zone out on Netflix, basically. <laughs> um, and he reads this poem called The Sea of Faith by Matthew Arnold. And after he reads the poem, this lady, Miss Phelps, just starts bawling her eyes out uncontrollably mm. for no apparent reason. And it's because the poetry was so evocative of the emotional, the inner emotional state and the, the you know, just kind of like stirring up the inner realities, the experiential realities. Like if you think of it in theology, the, the Puritans and Reform guys would say experiential preaching, you know, where the preaching kind of expounds the inner life. And I believe that's actually what fiction does. And it confronts you with all these characters and their inner life. And you look in that mirror and you see yourself or you see aspects of yourself. Mm. That's uh, it's so um, I, I think we, we can we've started to go down the road of, of dystopian novels, mm. uh, obviously, with the, the Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451. Which I, I sort of appreciate the 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 subtitle to the book is important because it's I think I'm gonna not get it perfect, but it's essentially this is the temperature that pages light on fire. What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like that's, that's, is, that, is that the tagline? Is that the is that for real, Joel? Yeah. Yeah. It's um. I'll get the. <laughs> it says here. Uh, oh, what is it? The tagline: the temperature at which book paper catches fire and burns. Okay, yeah, just which, hold on, just before we go any further, <laughs> just before we go any further, uh, what does dystopian mean, Vince? So, yeah, good, good so question. Sorry, before mm-hmm. you ask the question, I actually wanted to, to refine it slightly because I was actually talking with someone about this today, and, and I wanted to say what, is, what, is, what qualifies as a dystopian story because let me give you the example that I think doesn't qualify but sort of does. And the, okay. the one, one example would be The Matrix. Um, mm-hmm. The reason why I think it, kind of qualifies as like you're in a dystopian world but the story itself is more of like the hero savior story not so much like a dystopian story um and so i wanted to sort of give that as an example of like how do we clarify or how do we draw the line between that and and what what would we call the dystopian genre or or dystopian stories yeah that's a good distinction though i don't think it necessarily qualifies the genre whatever the character arc is or whether there's like a redemptive ending or not like brave new world has like a totally nihilistic ending so does 1984 uh fahrenheit 451 has a more hopeful ending um so i think we got to go to know what dystopia means because it's the negative we got to go to the positive which is utopia which comes from the book that thomas moore wrote in the 1500s called utopia which literally from the Greek means no place. And he wrote it as a critique of sort of like the English, you know, political system and and society and so on. Um, And it was a satire because it was literally saying like utopia, which we take shorthand to mean the perfect place. He was really saying 
is no place because it, it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a utopia. So, but then, you know, the word utopia kind of got distorted into this concept of the perfect place. And so dystopia is the opposite of that. So dystopia, uh, dystopia is the bad place. A dystopian society is the not good place. Um, and so the general kind of like governing elements of the genre is it's futuristic. It's more sci-fi. So you don't get much like dystopian fantasy, for example, like it wouldn't really be as clear of a genre then. Um, you get some kind of post-apocalyptic um, decimated world, a world that is in the aftermath of some great event, where in the vacuum of the gap left in society, whether it be politically, economically, environmentally, etc., um, someone has come on the scene and sort of like sucked a whole bunch of power and filled that vacuum and created some new system of society. And all dystopias are framed as utopias. So they're the people running the show in the dystopias are saying, this is the best place. But in actuality, it's revealed that it's like really bad. It's the exact opposite. So it's all about like the inversion of reality and the inversion of language. So I, I'm just going back to my Matrix example. I'm sort of like, well, that kind of qualifies based on all of the stuff that you've described. I think so. I would I would count Matrix as a dystopia because the the background story is that humanity lost the war against the AI robots. Yeah. And now we're just being harvested on these energy tanks. <laughs> so that's I don't want to go to that place personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's fair. I think um maybe if I was to draw a contrast to, you know, the the books that were, you know, the the ones on our radar, right? Brave New World, Fahrenheit for 51 and uh, 1984 to some extent they have a underlying moral story that's maybe a little bit more why they're known as opposed to you know i think of the matrix or you know any of the other sort of movies that are versions of this um yeah it's and like I hunger think... games right like they, they all they don't mm. seem to have the same level of like underlying impetus to the story they're tr or the or the the meaning they're trying to convey as opposed yes. to those are more entertainment value yeah that's that's an excellent point because yeah as i'm thinking about the matrix really like i mean i didn't watch the second or the third movie they were kind of whack to me but um yeah they're not really so part of the dystopian genre at least if it's being used responsibly by the author is that it's predictive, it's hypothetical, and it's rooted in current trends in the society. So it's meant to be like a warning parable. Or mm. as I kind of said with Garnell when we were chatting last week, I use the term, and I don't know, I don't know if anyone else uses this term, but I describe dystopian lit as a kind of secular prophecy. Mm. And so I think Man. in that- Okay, well, it's official. It's official. That's, <laughs> that's Vince Concilia's Con Con <laughs> word. Okay. That's your word, man. I like I, that. I like the sound maybe, of that. Maybe it's out there already. I don't know, but we'll uh, footnote it. It's officially yeah, footnote it. Yeah. Footnote it. 
at the academy let them know i'm gonna yeah <laughs> um, but yeah it makes perfect sense joel what you're saying like the matrix doesn't really do that the matrix is telling sort of more of a mythological kind of story um whereas brave new world 1984 and fahrenheit are all like okay we see these trends and we are worried about that and we're gonna kind of project into the future that if these trends continue what's society going to be like and mm. of course technology is the kind of key component to the dystopian world that how we relate to technology and how technology is used or abused essentially amplifies or uh, facilitates the dystopia so you got mm. like huxley and brave new world writing in the 1930s which is pretty amazing like vision to see genetic engineering as like a huge danger um mm -hmm. orwell's got technology in the form of mass surveillance and um historical revisionism mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then fahrenheit has technology um they all have technology through media in different ways but fahrenheit um kind of shows like all the nature imagery in Fahrenheit, when it comes to technology, all uses this negative nature imagery. So the okay, okay, okay. So before we get into that, let, let, let's let, let's hit these books um, sure. in order, um, so we can learn yeah, from it. Because 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 yeah, these books get thrown thrown around a lot, um, especially in light of uh, what we've been going through with COVID. Um, yeah. These titles have been mm. being thrown around. My, my, Haven't uh, you read? My fantasy hockey team names are COVID nineteen eighty four. <laughs> oh right right and things like that so so these books get thrown around so okay the first book uh brave new world what's this book about and why should we know about it why should yeah we care? so it's about a future world in which all humans are genetically designed um in laboratory tubes basically um sex is not seen to be purposeful in terms of reproduction because it's all done in a lab and so you are designed to be a certain level or class including your physical structure your intelligence all of that so you could be like an alpha plus male or a beta or whatever level they put you at and your level is also going to determine your profession and your social status and all these other things mm -hmm. and essentially the government rules this society that is genetically engineered by giving them drugs and sex and entertainment so it's a world of pure hedonism where it's free sex anywhere you want whenever you want it's they go to the movies which they call the feelies which have kind of sensory perceptive technology so you like you're smelling stuff and feeling stuff at the movies and and you're constantly taking pills to fight um any kind of depression mm. but the protagonist is dissatisfied and he's an like an alpha plus male and he starts to become extremely disturbed at how empty everything is and he actually wants to go visit um, what they call savage reservations which are places where 
people live like in pre-modern ways, pre-modern based on like the current setting of the novel in this future dystopia. Mm-hmm. So there people, you know, are monogamous and have sex to make babies and like, you know, are living in a in a totally different way. And this guy who is like kind of a high up engineer guy in the genetics facility goes to the savage reservation and meets a savage. And it's all ironic inversion because the savage is actually like the most human person in the whole story. Mm. Um, and essentially, you know, it has a very, very dark ending, very grim, very hopeless. Um, the savage is essentially overpowered by he 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 is taken from the reserve and brought to the city and shown all this technology and you get all these interactions with the savage and these elites and you know they're debating about like the savage knows and has memorized like parts of shakespeare and he realizes like you guys don't have shakespeare anymore like (laughs) um so there's this whole foil thing with the savage being a foil to the you know the the society on mass and what they represent and and how they live and stuff so it's very interesting like huxley saw way like way more than even orwell like orwell doesn't really capture the use of technology as much but huxley saw the implications of like genetic engineering and also mass mass entertainment and drugs Mm -hmm. now um if i'm not mistaken uh, nineteen is it 1984 that's has more of the concept of like phones and digital like uh, or is it or is it Brave New World? I, I there's one book I always remember. There's like someone drew a graphical image of like you know the someone staring into their palm with the light coming out of it. Um, and I I swear it's from one of those two books, but yeah, maybe I'm misremembering. Yeah, I, I don't quite remember that exact bit, but. And there's some predictive mm. technology stuff in Fahrenheit, but not that palm thing. Yeah, there's there's one one of the, it might be one of the other ones we're not talking about, but that it's just that that you know the the way our society today is so engulfed with technology, the mm. you know predict you know the, those people predicting that level of uh, technological sort of docile nature is yes. is always. Um, intriguing to that they could see that so far ahead totally based on like very primitive technology like imagine 1930s there were no computers really properly speaking and Mm. you somehow saw this secular prophecy secular prophecy bro (laughs) oh my goodness i I, I love that copyright vince consilla 2022 (laughs) (laughs) yeah no no that no no this is deep this is deep man um because yeah yeah this is something that these are some trends that that we're definitely um seeing in our culture today and Mm. okay so then from brave new world going into 1984 what's how is 1984 different from Brave New World? Yeah, let me hit that. But just before we skip Brave New World, I want to just read a quick quote, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Um, go ahead, man. I selected some quotes from each of these, so I'll try to get one for each. But this is really interesting. So the director of this whole big like laboratory institute, the ones who like, you know, all the biogenetics labs, whatever, um, is at this point in the story condemning this character 
Bernard, who's an alpha plus male who has become a deviant because he's like a heretic because he, he, you know, broke off from the society. And listen to the, listen to the indictment the director gives. He says, ladies and gentlemen, excuse me for interrupting your labors. A painful duty constrains me. The security and stability of society are in danger. Yes, in danger, ladies and gentlemen. This man, he pointed accusingly at Bernard, this man who stands before you here, this Alpha Plus, to whom so much has been given and from whom in consequence so much must be expected, this colleague of yours, or should I anticipate and say ex-colleague, has grossly betrayed the trust imposed in him by his heretical views on sport and soma, which is the drug they take to be happy all the time, by the scandalous unorthodoxy of his sex life, because he refused to just have casual sex everywhere, by his refusal to obey the teachings of our Ford and behave out of office hours like a babe in a bottle. He has proved himself an enemy of society, a subverter, ladies and gentlemen, of all order and stability, a conspirator, against civilization itself. So you don't want to have, you know, sex like everybody else and do drugs like everybody else and believe the orthodox line that the government is feeding you like everybody else? Like, I mean, Trudeau could have said this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So wait, uh, quickly, Uh, what's the big deal with the Alpha Plus? So he was like the top line of human, like from the genetic engineering. So for him to go kind of rogue, it it shows that like the technology didn't fix the humanity. Mm. You know, like oh. he was like he was the best kind of human that could be made in a in a test tube, and he went kind of off the rails. So yeah, the the, the it sounds like the that's the mass structured system. He was still his human nature was still fighting it. Exactly. Yeah. But the, but I guess what stuck out to me was that they didn't just like they said alpha plus. Like I thought alpha was was the top of the line, <laughs> was the top well, of the tier. But but I just thought the 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 phrase that they were using like it's alpha plus, um, like this person is like super, like a like, super alpha. Yeah, like literally like an ubermensch, like a superman, like beyond alpha. Yeah. So, mm, and that's that's the intention, right? Because it's it, it's a the genetically modified version. Well, if it's not better, why are we doing this? So it has to be better yeah. by default. It's a it's an inherent belief in the ability of technology to improve the human nature, to improve humanity, which is ironically the opposite of what happens because they're all a bunch of sex addicted, drug addicted, empty husks. Of humanity. Okay, so then 1984, how, how does that differ from Brave New World? So, 1984 is pretty popular. Yeah, this is maybe the most popular, the most well known. I'm sitting in my studio here looking at a new Penguin edition in which they designed the cover to look like the American flag, but with like eyeballs on it instead of stars. And apparently when Trump came into office, which obviously this is so illogical because it doesn't match Trump or the politics surrounding all of that, but they, you know, this book started selling like hotcakes because people thought America's now like, you know, 1984 because Trump is in office. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so 1984 is much more of a political book 
and it's much more focused on totalitarianism and and a, a military industrial kind of complex which uses force and uses war and technology to keep people in line rather than necessarily like sex drugs and you know entertainment um so it's a much bleaker and more sparse metallic kind of vision of the future um and in it big brother is the name of the sort of dict the mysterious unknown dictator figure who who rules over um you know like basically the world's been divided up into three major superpowers and Eurasia and Oceania and I'm blanking on the third one are all at war and war is constant war never ceases and so everybody's always in this wartime kind of poverty and the party that rules rules through um essentially controlling language they've they've invented a new kind of english dialect called new speak and where they've like simplified words and reduced language to these like kind of nuts and bolts and compound words and they have surveillance cameras everywhere tvs everywhere that are watching everybody and the main character winston works for the party so he's you know he's fairly well off in terms of his level in the society he's a party member and he works in the ministry of truth um which in orwell all the language is inverted so the ministry of truth is really all about lies um the ministry of love is really all about like military and legal control and so on um so he has to revise historical records so when they change the narrative or they want to like kill somebody who's you know seen as an offender against the state or who is seen as a thought criminal so there's such a thing as thought crime in this world and there's the thought police um and there's double speak which is kind of a way of using the new speak english dialect to say mutually contradictory things simultaneously um so you can be hauled in for a thought crime and uh, essentially the the state rules in a very brutal iron-fisted kind of manner and it's much more political um than the other two books that we're talking about today so um just the as you were talking about you know the i mean the term we use today right double speak um i'm assuming that concept from 19 is comes from 1984 or wellian right but it's actually sort mm -hmm. of an abstraction from outside of the book well then don't they talk about double speak right in the book um, we say if something's Orwellian, um, that it's kind of, I guess, in this circuit of this very dystopian, totalitarian kind of use of language. Um, but there's literally like characters in the book who are working on the next edition, you know, of the Newspeak Dictionary. And mm -hmm. it's all about simp like oversimplifying language, like causing language to be either mutually contradictory or so compounded and reduced that it's really hard to get any nuance out of some of the words. Um, so like the Ministry of Truth is condensed to mini-true, 
Mm. Um, yeah, which in this whole COVID-19 situation, like the the language signals that have been sent all along, I would call that doublespeak because you're saying two mutually self-contradictory things simultaneously as though they're both true. Like, remember in the beginning, they were like, you know, only the elderly and the sick really need to worry. But then the news media puts a story out like, you know, healthy 18-year-old kid dies of COVID. And you're like, well, you just told me I don't have anything to worry about. Like, what's going on here? Mm. Um, and so there's sort of like two lines of speaking happening simultaneously that causes cognitive dissonance in listeners. And that keeps you kind of blinded. And in 1984, they also have something they call, that's like a mandatory thing for the party called the two minutes hate. And it's like all the people gather in this room and watch a video of the enemy, whichever, uh, you know, power that they're at war with currently, which always changes anyway. And it's always self-contradictory who they're at war with. And they just like scream in rage at images of their enemies and stuff. Interesting. Yes, very, very wow. dystopian. <laughs> yeah. Well, very, very, very realistic. <laughs> well, mm. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. I mean, I, I've definitely told a bunch of people they're applying for jobs with the Ministry of to- Truth over Twitter in the last two years. Um, <laughs> so, yes, that, that concept is definitely um, very real for, for what we've gone Yeah, we could definitely see, we, we can definitely see um, some some parallels when was 1984 written 1948 so he just reversed the last two numbers 1948 yeah um hmm, fascinating um in regards to the connection that we that we see today um okay well let me ask you this um Oh no! I'll actually, no, I'll save this. I'll save this question um, for um, after the last book. Um, sure. And it's just in it's just in regards to um, how do your students respond, or how should students respond, or how should teachers teach it, or how should parents handle it, or why should we um, continue? Yeah. So we'll get to those. But but um, sure. Can, do you have a quote from that book? You you might have a quote from it. Yeah. Just uh, I'll tell you the slogans that are really famous from this book because those exemplify the use of language. And then I have a a one little quote to, to hit. Um, So the famous slogans um, are like written on these ministries and for um, the slogan, three slogans of the party that is ruling this totalitarian party, war is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. And so all of those are self-contradictory terms, like those sentences don't make any sense logically. But in terms of how the party uses that language, war is peace because if they have the society constantly at war, everyone's always constantly in fear, and so then they're pliable, and they're easily controlled, and they will be willing to, you know, toe the party line and do whatever it takes to quote unquote win the war. So it's sure it's peace for big brother, but it's not peace for the proletariat or the people um, under this government. And so that's sort of, you know, all of those terms are used by the government to control people to, to use language in a way that exploits 
language and essentially, you know, gives the government more power, um, which I think we're seeing in Canada with some of these bills that are being passed recently. Um, so yeah, maybe that's 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 good enough as a quote from from 1984, I think. Fahrenheit. What's the difference? What what's what's the difference um, in Fahrenheit 451? So my theory about this one, this one's my favorite. I think um, it's a little bit poetic the way it's written, which maybe some people might not like as much. Um, but I think that Fahrenheit actually kind of blends 1984 and Brave New World in in a way. Because in Fahrenheit, you have a future world where all books are banned and the firemen have to go and burn books and people are like reporting their neighbors if they think they have books. And society in Fahrenheit has gotten reduced to um, being entertainment junkies. So you got the entertainment element. So for example, um, the main character, Montag's wife, she's addicted to like, she has seashell radios in her ear, which are kind of like, he kind of predicted earbuds and wireless. And she's <laughs> constantly listening to the radio streaming in her ear, in her seashell radio earbuds. And she's got three full wall TVs, like called parlor wall TVs. And she just constantly watches like reality TVs where you can kind of like sort of interact with the programs and their house is characterized kind of like a mausoleum and there's death and darkness there and the sterile kind of light of a screen dominates. And there's a girl named Clarice who is who's his neighbor and her light is her house is full of light and they sit around and talk in that house. And there's these two different images of light, like the, the sterile light from a screen versus the light of a candle or the or natural light. And mm. um, so there's all this deep symbolism, like he talks about the frenetic energy of electricity versus the calm kind of glow of a candle. And there's a lot of dual kind of symbolism, like a dual signification of symbols. So fire can burn. And be destructive, like if the firemen come and burn the books, or it can be a campfire where you can cook something. Um, and so he constantly weaves these um, images that can have double meanings. Um, and in this society, also, um, people don't know how to think critically anymore. The government has like edited the historical records and they control through that sounds familiar hmm. <laughs> now, in case just for the listener in case you don't know there's a controversy right now with uh the public archive talking about erasing john sir john a mcdonald uh records wow i did not hear about that yeah based on one complaint now this is getting into kind of me projecting but what what i had an epiphany once when i was teaching this book and i realized like what is the importance of the fact that physical books are being destroyed in this dystopian world if something only exists digitally it can be edited and changed and unless you had a screenshot or some wayback machine kind of archive 
or oh. NFTs. But anyways, that's a sidebar. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> yeah, crypto to the rescue. Um, or I guess uh, blockchain to the rescue. Yeah. But yeah, like you, you destroy a physical artifact and it no longer exists. And so you can edit history and how we've become a streaming digitized society. Like you guys remember CDs, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> DVDs, like that's almost not a thing anymore. Right. And it just came to me like, wow, the importance of like physical property, physical physicality physical existence as a stamped like you know historical artifact like uh like uh the like manuscripts yeah yeah so they're destroying the physical books in this world right and once they're gone you're not going to be able to prove differently if they've written different books with a new narrative mm -hmm. and that and then that's why the 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 bible is verifiable and you know it hasn't been changed because of the transmission of scripture in mm. regards to manuscripts. So, and, and this ties into what you're saying. So when you have numerous manuscripts, so if Paul writes a letter and sends it to a church and they duplicate that letter to, to pass it on, um, the original copy, we know we can verify um, that it hasn't been changed because there are multiple copies to verify it's authenticity mm -hmm. as opposed to like the Quran where it has a shorter, uh, shorter window of, of transmission, textual transmission, meaning that um, the crowning achievement of the Quran is that they have their the main one main manuscript. And because you have the one main manuscript, it can be changed. Yeah. Uh, and, and interestingly, talking about book burning, like Uthman, the caliph who kind of compiled that version of the Quran, he burned all the other alternative versions. And some of Muhammad's reciters even disagreed with that final version, and they recited it differently. So mm -hmm. talk, about, talk about book burning, like Fahrenheit 451, like that, wasn't, that was practiced like as a fundamental way of codifying a text. And eliminating mm -hmm. all competitor texts. Right, right, yeah, and hence why the theory or the fact that um, that the Bible has more than a thousand manuscripts to verify itself makes the witness of the scriptures, the authenticity of the scriptures, stronger, not weaker. Mm -hmm. The less the lesser um, manuscripts you have uh, means that it's more likely um, to have a, a more direct angle to change mm -hmm. the text. What, what's super cool, too, is I'm not sure if you read Fahrenheit 451, but the, the most important book that Montag, the firefighter, steals is the last known Bible in existence. He finds a Bible, and he starts reading it and carrying it around, and he finds this professor who has like a, a, his own printing press and wants to like reprint books, but he's kind of a coward, and he tells tells this professor like he he has a copy of the bible and it's literally like the last known one in existence um so it's super interesting that the key book that speaks about the preservation of knowledge that montague finds is the bible mm -hmm. 
Wow. Actually, yo, that sounds that sounds pretty good. Wait, dope, but this is this is the question, Darnell. Am I inspiring you to read fiction yet? Because that's my <laughs> I, I, Okay, you know what, man? Uh, you know what? Um you know what I'll say this, man. I'm 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 converted. Okay. I've, 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 I've Praise converted. the Lord. But if praise the Lord. <laughs> if, <laughs> if if you've heard about <laughs> if, for the listener who's heard Darnell talk about how long it takes him to pick a movie on Netflix, oh, I'm yes. assuming he will be very yes. uh, scrutiny or, or scrutinizing yeah, uh, yeah. the various uh, options before uh, delving into. Well, uh, well, actually, you know what, Joel? Actually, um, actually, what what uh, what Vince is saying is making me less making me less uh, um, that. Yeah, that I would scrutinize less. Because my mind is open to um, to the creativity, and I, I would probably say the common grace that God has given mm. unbelievers to practice um, secular prophecy. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I would be a lot more open to hearing um, stories from from non Christian perspectives that uh, that have uh, parallels to what we see today. Yeah, I think um, you know your point. You know, talk about like common grace, but also um, the idea that the the narrative story, right? That that we see, like, I mean, I'm thinking of what Jordan Peterson talks about with narratives and things like that. That like we can see the truth that's written on, you know, written amongst the the world we live in, i.e., you know, the Creator and His creation. Mm-hmm. That that the general person regardless of their faith will will know these truths inherently and so common grace can lead to some profound insights regardless of their faith mm-hmm. yeah so, no you're, you're right joel and so then let me throw this at you vince um you know a lot of times you know for christians we we can we kind of can be theological snobs Mm. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say indoctrinated because indoctrination means not to read other literatures and our faith encourages us to encourages us to read other books outside of the Bible. Uh, so my question to you would be, uh, how can we as Christians better embrace non-Christian texts? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that we need to understand that truth is truth and wherever there is truth it has a name stamped on it jesus christ and the early church was very much um, aware of this and embraced it much more than we do as protestants perhaps Um, they had this idea of like the word in seed form and wherever truth was found even in pagan literature they saw that as christ you know revealing himself partially um to those people so you have the like the sperma logia like the i think that's how how they said it but um this the seed form of the word christ is the word right christ is the truth like sometimes when we hear word of god like we're such modern protestants we think the bible but really, it's Jesus. Like first and foremost, the primary meaning of the Word of God is a person, and so where He has deposited, you know, traces of 
truth because we're made in his image and Christ is the image of you know the invisible God um, all humanity partakes in that albeit in a distorted and you know broken way but uh you know I would use a, an illustration like you know if if you found a, a da Vinci or a Rembrandt masterpiece but it had some like mud splashed on it you'd be like yeah that's still a Rembrandt like that's worth millions um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of humanity, right? We are, we are the masterpiece of God's creation in His image, but the image has been, you know, distorted and defiled. Um, but there are traces of that beauty. Like I would still gaze at that Rembrandt paint, painting and be like, "Wow," you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think we need to take that redemptive framework to all literature, to engagement with all texts, all media, um, see in it. The biblical principles and and the biblical narrative, um, and how the biblical narrative can like shed light on it where it deviates from God's truth. But you know, I've had prophetic moments teaching like Macbeth, um, where it was like really speaking to me and my personal spiritual life, my situation. Like it was cutting me down. Like while I was speaking the words, I was like under heavy conviction teaching my kids, and even with. Um, Fahrenheit 451, I had this amazing experience where at the end of the unit, I get a letter from this student and she wrote out like three, three hand page pages, handwritten pages. And I could tell they really liked the book and they were really engaged. They were highlighting stuff. They were chattering and talking before class. And I, I wasn't really totally clued in like what was going on with the class that like, you know, that they were that engaged, but this girl writes me this letter saying like it dropped a bomb on all of their lives because of the whole technology addiction feeling empty distracting Mm. yourself to death and then wow this girl was doing her project on mildred montague's wife who is like escapism addiction distraction suicidal total media addict like can't think doesn't want to stop to think and this girl was doing her project on this character and she realized oh i'm actually doing this project about myself i'm mildred that's heavy and she got like wow really really crushed by that and she literally called up her cell phone company and canceled her data plan (laughs) wow Mm -hmm. and i didn't even Mm -hmm. know this was going on like i found out about it after um but if that's not like repentance like i don't know what is like that's that's pretty good for a secular Mm -hmm. book Mm -hmm. wow that's powerful that's powerful man uh i my we have a a friend of the show uh phil thomas actually and he has a podcast called afterwatch the afterwatch with phil navar and so phil thomas uh he is he's an animator by trade and and he's also an elder at his church and mm-hmm. you know he's always preaching to me the importance of story mm-hmm. um and he's like darnell you know you weave story into anything you do you'll always nail it whether you're giving a lecture you're writing a blog post you're teaching a lesson if you always weave story in you'll always be a great teacher and the point is that you know god redemptive history is a story and god has we- used story to to relate to man, to, to teach mm. man so he can remember things and draw him in to learning and understanding. And so I thought that was pretty powerful. And with that said, the show, the, this segment of the Sixth Sense Report is called Type Beast. 
And for the, I don't know if the listeners remember or know, but um, type beast is a play on words of a hype beast, mm. right? And a hype beast is somebody uh, who, who, who loves the hype of the culture. Um, new sneaker releases, new, new Bape um, gear, new Supreme gear, right? You're always chasing the latest fad to say, I spent 400 bucks on this just to say, you ain't up on this, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I was like, okay, let, um, now that, you know, you know, we're Christians and we're saved, let's, 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 let's flip the hype beast on its head and, 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 and let's use, um, let's use this type beast as in the type, the text and, and be hyped about books to be hyped mm-hmm. about literature. Um, and and kind of like I think the parallel like there's a parallel that I was laughing about what with Joel and maybe this was off of uh, off recording and I was like you know well hype beasts um, you know these guys will have shoes they haven't worn yet right <laughs> these guys will buy shoes they haven't worn yet and sometimes these guys will show off right and they'll lick the bottom of their shoe right oh, they'll lick gosh. the shoe they'll be like look man I'm, I'm licking the shoe because. <laughs> Yo, so I, I haven't even. I have, it's not. Yo, it's so new. I'm licking my shoe bottom, man. Right, but then, but then, like, and then I'll joke around with joke people. I'll be like, yo, I'll be on my bookshelf, and I'll be doing the same thing. I have books. I haven't. I, I buy books. I haven't even read yet. Like, I, 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 I can lick the spine of my book and be like, come on, man. Oh, <laughs> man. Right? You don't, you don't got this yet. And so, so it, it's kind of it's funny, but it's fun um, to be excited about reading and to get the newest books and and reading. But can you talk about that a bit, Vince, in regards to like what you're doing with Aslan, um, and, and teaching literature and how liter reading is not cool. Type being a tight beast is not cool. Can you talk about like literature and it being cool again? Hi, I'm Darnell Samuels. You may remember me from such podcasts as Thanks Coach and The Sixth Sense Report. When Joel and I are not studying for the next episode, we're paying bills for hosting and production. If you want to help us out, you can make a donation of any amount by clicking the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes. If you broke, don't worry about it. You can subscribe and leave us a review on your podcast catcher. If you did this already, then you can share the show with a friend. Joel Jeezy and I appreciate your support. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Yeah, part of what I'm trying to do with Aslan is like also make things look beautiful and cool. Because, you know, if you're a student, you get some dry looking, dusty document that's all text heavy and like uh, sad as it is, I think Marshall McLuhan was right. Like the medium is the message. And that's so clear nowadays mm, that people is the message. People, you know, expect a certain mode or quality of communication, depending on the platform that it's happening on. Like. You know, I, I listen, you know, I want to do my homework for this podcast. So I was listening to some of your episodes and I was like, man, this intro sounds hype. This is really good. It's like mm-hmm. the audio production was really nice. The editing. Shout out to Madden Media. What yeah, up, Anthony? But if it sounded, you know, like you recorded in a tin can in like, you know, your garage, um, your listeners are going to just immediately judge no. you for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, like the, you know, 
part uh, part of Aslan is like I'm using traditional art from like fine art classics. I'm integrating that into my curriculum documents. I've got like colorful things, icons. It's got like wayfinding icons, so it's easy to navigate. So it's colorful. It's fun. It's also a little bit masculine because, to be quite honest, the the teaching field is dominated by women. Just dominated. There are all these power women, like they're power teachers. I don't even know how do they do it. Like they make me tired just watching them, and they just love teaching and they're they're doing everything. And so even on teachers pay teachers, like the top sellers are all women and they're like super organized. But you know their stuff tends to have a, a slightly, you know, just sometimes slightly girly look or slightly, you know, soft or rounded or you know the fonts they choose and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted Aslan Academy to represent like this traditional aesthetic with great modern tools and like get the good modern videos and like they need that. It's the kids need video based connections and things now, and they need things to to look a certain way because their attention spans, unfortunately, their brains have been rewired literally, like remapped. Mm. Um, and so they can't sorry sorry, just just to be clear just to be clear vince sure what do you mean by remapped just so i'm clear yeah and this connects really well back to fahrenheit so literally like neuroplasticity right like our brains are being changed and transformed by the medium by the technology that we're using so there's an amazing book i i mean uh, you like nonfiction, so uh, The Shallows by Nicholas Carr. That's an amazing analysis of this change that the internet has brought to our brains and the way that we think and experience like reading. And he talks about this cool story about Nietzsche. When Nietzsche was going blind, um, he couldn't write by hand anymore, and somebody brought him like one of the first typewriters, this big metal German typewriter. and. And he could feel, you know, from the kind of like bumps on the keys, he could memorize which, you know, letters were where, and he could he could write again. And his friend read this draft, like, of something he had written on a typewriter for the first time, and he was like, your style is totally different. It has this kind of, like, metallic, harsh directness. It's much different than your previous writing. And so the very medium on which he was writing changed his writing. It changed his brain. And kids now, like, they can't read books. They literally, to some degree, can't because they can't focus that long. Yes. They can't can't deep read. They can't deep focus. Mm. They, They can't read for more than five minutes without wanting to pick up their phone compulsively. Oh, man, you're making me want to cry. But what's crazy is Fahrenheit 451 saw this too. Um, he, he has a whole section on it where he says what happened to media and why did the world become this way. And I'll just read this p- paragraph quick. Um, mm-hmm. So this is uh, Montag, the main character, the fireman. His boss is Captain Beatty. And the captain seems to know the true history of the world and knows that They've done this historical revisionism, and he seems to have even read books, which he shouldn't have. And so he he explains to Montag, like, how did we get here? Like, how did how did society get to this point? And he says, 
Classics cut to 15-minute radio shows, then cut again to fill a two-minute book column, winding up at last as a 10- or 12-line dictionary resume. I exaggerate, of course. The dictionaries were for reference. But many were those whose sole knowledge of Hamlet, you know the title, certainly, Montag. It is probably only a faint rumor of a title to you, Mrs. Montag. Um, whose sole knowledge, I say, of Hamlet was a one-page digest in a book that claimed, Now, at last, you can read all the classics. Keep up with your neighbors. Do you see? Out of the nursery, into the college, and back to the nursery. There's your intellectual pattern for the past five centuries or more. <laughs> if that doesn't put chills on down your spine, like, I don't know, man, like, this is serious because, you know, and then he goes on to say, like, speed up the film, Montag. Click, pick, look, I, now, flick, here, there, swift pace, up, down, in, out, why, how, who, what, where, eh? Digest, 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 digest. Politics, one column, two sentences, a headline. Then in midair, all vanishes. And it, this is exactly what we're living in. People can't think and reason because their brains are literally addicted to dopamine from this bite-sized media addiction, like Twitter and all this mm. stuff. Mm. Okay. Actually, I, I remember seeing um, friend, um, my cousin sharing this post with me about how this is a unique time in history to progress and to dominate your mm. competition in the sense that we live in an age where people are constantly distracted. And if you can master your phone and all the distractions, you have a leg up on your competition in, in, in anything in life. This, like, like this is a, cause this is where everybody's been weakened. Um, because of um, you know the quick fix of dopamine um, that we get from our phones, um, it's hard to get work done. It's hard to focus, mm -hmm. and it's scary. Like I said, it made me want to cry to to think like yo, like you know, some of these kids, um, you know, aren't even getting a head start. Like I, I always thought I I got distracted when I was reading as a kid, mm -hmm. but you know. You know, when you see kids, you know, all of us are inundated, but kids are inundated a lot earlier with devices um, and, and not limiting your screen time. Yeah. And so now, like me, I, more so me in the context of teaching Bible studies and asking guys, grown men, and even just more, more so young men um, to be like, okay, yo, like read through Hebrews in a sitting. Like in theory, you know, good practices to read before a Bible study is to read through a book in a sitting and a lot of guys can't do that. Mm. Mm -hmm. And much less students, much less students. Because now, now I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, so now when it's time to assign stuff to, the, to students, like, okay, yo, we're doing a book report. And you know, uh, Mr. Samuels, man, like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. There's 95 well, he, pages in this book. 90, yeah, there's 95 pages. 95. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, well, and, and it's, yeah. This blew my mind one time my students told me this in a class I, it was while i was teaching this book and they said we were talking about like googling things and like how to do research and wikipedia and whatever and this student says yeah sir our younger brothers and sisters don't even google anything and i'm like well what do you mean what do they do then they said they youtube everything so mm. they don't even search for text their search engine is YouTube. 
because they well, can't read. They don't want to read stuff. They want to see a video explaining something. Okay, okay. Let me throw something at you as a teacher, right? Um, are you familiar with like differentiated differentiated learning? Yeah. Um, there's yeah. different ways that people learn. So mm-hmm. w- wouldn't that be a, a case of that person is a visual learner? Um, so they don't, you know, read well. So so watching a video of somebody breaking it down would be better for them to learn. I mean, I'm not against using video. Video is like a good tool, um, mm-hmm. but your brain actually uses different things to do those different modes of learning. So it's been proven even if you read from a screen, like a backlit screen versus reading from a paper book, mm-hmm. your brain engages differently in focus. And when you read from a paper book, you actually your brain goes into more of a deep reading focus mode. And this is all in The Shallows by Nicholas Carr. It's a really good book. Um, and yeah, like I think it should be video can be supplemental, um, but without reading, you're you're losing certain critical faculties to like engage the other media forms. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big problem, man. It's tough. Like, I, I lost my patience. I gave up on my kids having, like, cell phones after it was just too frustrating. They're too distracted. And I was like, sorry, guys, put your phone in this bin as soon as you walk into my classroom. Okay. You get, it, you get it back on break. Because they can't learn if they're distracted every 48 seconds. Oh, boy. Vince Sanity. <laughs> uh <laughs> I was nice about it, but like I no, like you'll you'll see when you get in the classroom, it it can be brutal. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I, okay, let me let me throw this at you, uh, Vince, uh, and also Joel, just in the, in the line of what you're saying. Um, so like when I'm when I'm teaching Bible study, I don't, I'm not a fan of tablets. I'm not a fan of Bible phones, and I, and I told this to Joel before. Like when I'm teaching, I'm just like, okay, you know what? Like, yo, we're not using phones. We're not using devices. For using Bibles, not for the sake of being tradition, but for the sake of like learning how to navigate the text. And so it's very important when we're studying the scriptures um, to be able to see text all in one sitting visually. And there's limits to our devices, right? Where you can only see, like if you have your phone, you can only see but 10 verses at a time. And if I'm teaching something, I'm like, yo, I need you to see the whole of chapter one and chapter two at the same time. And at the same time, I want you to keep a finger in <laughs> uh, the next, in the next book to flip to that next book. And I need you, I need you to be able in a split second to be able to flip back and forth and to see the text as a whole. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I like to use an actual Bible so we can see the whole of a text, but also, yeah. um, to get them used to writing in the margins and, and writing and highlighting. And they'll be like, oh, I can do that in my phone. I can do that and save it in the cloud. And I'm like, yeah. Um, but, but part of it is like the, the very physical book is an heirloom. That's an heirloom. Those are your thoughts um, added, your commentary, where you're at and your understanding in the book. So when you die or whatever the case is, you can pass that on, even with just books in general. Right, I'm sure Joel has borrowed books from me, or I borrowed books from Joel. Where there's writing in it, and it's helpful. Yeah, it's helpful. So if I get something from Joel, or or shout out to Gideon, <laughs> right, um, and I get something, and 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 there's commentary. I'm like, okay, 
I wasn't sure about this paragraph. This is what Joel was, this is where Joel's head was at. I'm like, okay, I understand now. Right? So you're kind of adding your commentary to it. Gideon Bible Pardon? or no, Gideon, Gideon Bible or your friend? <laughs> you know, no, no, no. He's, he's, he's a friend of ours uh, and a listener. So you know, shout <laughs> but, to Gideon. But it made me think imagine how many people over the years got saved from a Gideon Bible in a, in a hotel, you know, yep, tons. drawer. There's yeah, no, there's ain't going to be no tablet Bible in that drawer, <laughs> you know, a hundred years from now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That yeah, the yeah. physical, the physicality, yeah, the back to the importance of the physical yeah. manuscript. Yeah, it's very important. So, I, 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 you said something earlier about, um, I want to say you said focus and deep focus. I think is yeah. something you had said. It, mm-hmm. re- it took me back when I was in school. I always found literally the first thirty minutes of studying was like the the hardest time to get through. I was like rereading things the most and then at whatever reason it was like once i'd got past that 30 minute mark i could do like two and a half hours and i just felt like i was on an amazing pace such in the zone um yeah. and, I, and i wonder if you could you know speak to a little bit more of that you know deep focus maybe is the right the term you had used um, yeah that's the term that nicholas carr uses in that book the shallows and he talks about how um reading is a kind of unique thing in human history where you get immersed so mentally because your mind has to create all of the apparatus of the imagery of what you're reading about right even if you're reading nonfiction or something like your brain is creating images based on the words that you're seeing on the page and you kind of have to tune out your surroundings and historically like that's not a super safe thing to do necessarily to like tune out your surroundings but reading is like this unique thing that we've developed that has a tactile sense you can feel the book in your hands the paper the weight of the thing in your hands and you know as you as you read and you focus you begin to your brain actually shifts into this other mode where it's a deep focus because you've filtered out all these other things and so like your experience of studying is like you got to kind of like get past whatever that 30 minutes of kind of like distractions and other thoughts creeping in and then you start to settle in and you start to focus and then all those distractions are kind of filtered out um so yeah i think it happens in like lots of different modes of engagement like depending on what we're doing not just reading like when i'm designing curriculum pages like some sometimes like i don't know how much time passed because i got so deep into the just this very concentrated mode of of doing one thing um but the kind of wild card element that i found in that book the shallows is just like how technology actually mediates focus and you can be more or less focused depending on the medium that part is the worrisome part i think yeah, so I, I have one sort of last follow-up, I, I guess. I just wanted to sort of tie it in. And this is, you know, sort of relates to me with respect to, um, you know, you spoke about the the difference with that that digital, you know, copy having a different interaction with your brain. Um, I'm wondering if you have any insights on on sort of, let's say, audio books um, and, and audio learning. I've sort of, you know, from a lack of time and, and uh, you know, two young children. 
um, audio books <laughs> and, and podcasts on uh, increased speeds is sort of my my current method of, of learning as a, the, mean, the primary means, I should say. Um, so just wondering uh, if you have any uh, thoughts on that sort of deep or, or focus um, with regards to audio. Yeah, that I like. I like audiobooks and, and I've gotten into it more and more in the recent past as well. Um, just because I notice I don't have time to like sit and read a book. And at first, you know, when you start listening to audiobooks, like you get distracted or you lose your train of thought more often than not, and you kind of kind of rewind a lot. <laughs> but I noticed like the more audiobooks I've been listening to, it's like I'm training my brain. It's like a discipline of a type of learning like Darnell was talking about differentiated instruction. Um, and now like my, my retention from audiobooks is like off the charts because I've just listened to so many podcasts and audiobooks that my memory for that kind of learning and comprehension is like really strengthened. Um, so maybe this is a way that we're adapting to the situation, right? Like we've lost, depth of this other discipline and skill and now we're supplementing and so like yeah i'm not against any of these modes of learning or technologies like per se in and of like darnell is themselves they can be (laughs) neutral like yeah but um but yeah i think like we're compensating somehow because we've lost a lot of time and we've lost the discipline of just like sitting and reading with a book in our lap and i remember the days like you know high school days or earlier like sitting on a couch all weekend and reading like some fantasy book some adventure book and just <laughs> like reading all weekend and just loving it like i don't do that anymore um so yeah i, I think audiobooks are like a really good supplement podcast and you'll strengthen that area of your brain and your retention the more you practice it but for some reason, like reading from a screen and backlight, I guess maybe there's a way to like, you know, develop better. Yeah. Habits. Well, unless, or, unless you got a, a Kindle paperweight, which I got mm, paperweight. That, yeah. yeah. That's a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Where, where there's no backlight. Right. Yeah. Um, well, Vince, we want to thank you for your time. Uh, we learned a lot. And man, um, I, I pray the Lord, you know, blesses your work. Um, it's, it, it's really insightful, um, very helpful, very edifying, and I'm sure I'm sure our listeners found that too. H- how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can go to uh, aslanacademy.ca, and uh, there's a there's a contact page there. You can check us out on Instagram, same handle, Aslan Academy, um, and I've, we've got a YouTube channel. Love if you would subscribe and support the channel, watch the videos, see what you think about the, the literary lessons. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the primary channel. You can find me on all the, on all the socials. And um, yeah, I just love what you guys are doing as well. And it was really a great pleasure. It's really inspiring to talk to you guys and it really boosts my um, inspiration and creativity as well because just the dialogue, right, is so important. So. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Yeah, and thank you for for coming on, man. God bless you guys. Madden and Mitchell Media.